It's been almost six months to the day since a Minneapolis convenience store worker called 911 to report George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, for attempting to buy cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. 17 minutes after the first squad car arrived, Floyd lay dead. The cause of death resulting from a police officer pinning Floyd to the pavement by pressing his knee against the back of his neck for nearly nine minutes. More protests and uprisings are expected in Minnesota and across the country this weekend over the death of George Floyd. The nation erupted into scenes of chaos, often followed by looting. Three months before Floyd's death, Ahmaud Arbery was pursued and killed by three white men while jogging through a coastal Georgia neighborhood. And nearly two and a half months before Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old African-American emergency room technician, was fatally shot in her Louisville home by police. Loved ones of Breonna Taylor grieving and outraged. The 26-year-old Louisville first responder shot eight times and killed by police. As people took to the streets in protest of these senseless deaths, unlike years past, many of our largest companies and corporations are also voicing support for the protest movement. But for one corporate sector in particular, issues of systemic racism and unconscious bias are a particularly fraught and difficult problem to solve. And that, dear listener, is where we're starting today. I'm Adam Allington, and you're listening to Uncommon Law, a narrative podcast project from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Over the next five episodes, we'll be taking a deep dive into the world of elite, high-revenue law firms, and why efforts to promote diversity and inclusion remain incredibly difficult to achieve. And with me to help guide us through this discussion is someone who's quite familiar with the world of big law. Lisa Hellam is the executive editor for strategic initiatives here at Bloomberg Industry Group. She's also a former practicing attorney and the former editor-in-chief of the National Law Journal. Hey, Lisa, how are you? Hi, Adam. I'm well. I'm excited to be part of this project that we're calling Black Lawyers Speak, Stories of the Past, Hopes for the Future. And as the name suggests, we're looking at where Black lawyers in corporate spaces have been in the profession and where they hope to go. And a lot of the lawyers I've spoken with express hope that the current demand for change in the nation and also within firms will jumpstart the push for inclusion that's been in the works at many places for decades, but has yielded less change than they've hoped for. Definitely. The sacrifice of George Floyd's life has allowed us to have conversations that we were not having before. Maya Hazel is the global head of diversity and inclusion for the White and Case law firm. White and Case ranked number four on the American Lawyers 2020 Diversity Scorecard, which evaluates firms on their representation of minority attorneys. Nearly 34% of their lawyers and nearly 21% of the firm's U.S. partners were members of a minority group in 2019. And as Hazel points out, many of the largest law firms in the country have voiced statements of support for those protesting police violence, while also cutting large checks to public interest groups such as the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and the ACLU. But she says America has also lived through moments like this one before. And whether all the statements of support amount to more black and brown lawyers being hired and promoted to work in big law is still an open question. That's the huge challenge. And so I think this is a time for reinvention and reimagination about how we get things done and how we can be empathetic as an organization 
to still run our business and put the needs of our people first. And my optimism is around that concept of empathy. With the conversations we're now having and people being quite candid about their lived experience as people of color, as Black people, in their experiences of uh, systemic racism, I think when we're in this space, there's tremendous opportunity for empathy. And I am optimistic that it will cause leaders to uh, take pause, look at their organizations and say, okay, what needs to shift? What do we need to do differently in order to still be top of the market for the work that we do, but put our people first? As Hazel points out, over the years, there have been lots of well-intentioned initiatives aimed at diversity. Still, the percentages of Black partners, and more precisely, Black equity partners, remain quite low. According to the most recent diversity survey conducted by Vault and the Minority Corporate Council Association, the percentage of Black equity partners is just under 2%. The lack of diversity in Big Law's partner class is a perennial topic. Just a few months ago, Cravath, Swain, and Moore, an AmLaw 100 firm, promoted two African Americans to equity partner, just the second and third black partners in the firm's 201-year history. Many of the attorneys we spoke with for this project said that lack of diversity at the top sends a message that while diversity may be something that's talked about in press releases and at conferences, at the end of the day, it's not a priority. But in the wake of George Floyd, some attorneys of color say they also felt compelled to share their own experiences, to be more visible, and perhaps help foster the kind of empathy Maya Hazel was talking about. So the, the George Floyd tape really touched me in a very deep and personal way. And I felt like, you know, I had to speak out. This is Wendell Taylor. I am the managing partner of Hunt and Andrews Kurtz uh, DC office of about 200 lawyers in the office of about a thousand person firm. During the pandemic, with all of his colleagues working remotely, like many people who work for large firms or companies, Taylor was hosting regular conference calls or Zoom meetings. You know, seeing the the protest and seeing how people were genuinely moved by the George Floyd tape it started to push me in the direction of sharing my personal experiences. It largely, at that time, it had been negative experiences with, with law enforcement. It was during one of these team meetings that Taylor decided to do something he'd never considered before. He shared some of his own deeply personal experiences dealing with police. You can really hear how much these memories have haunted him. This story that you're about to hear happened back in 1997, while Taylor was in his second year of law school at the University of Richmond. During a summer internship at the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, he'd occasionally go back to campus to work there. After a few hours of writing, I took a break, walked downstairs from my office, headed towards the law library when I was approached by a man in plain clothes. We said hello. He asked if I was a student there. I said yes, extended my hand to introduce myself. Instead of shaking my hand, he grabbed my shirt and demanded to see the tattoo on my arm. That's when I realized he was a cop. Taylor asked the officer for a description of the person he was looking for, to which he replied, a black male, about five foot nine, weighing 185 pounds. Not only does Taylor not have a tattoo on his arm, 
As a 6'2 former linebacker, Taylor said he hadn't weighed 185 pounds since high school. I responded, that's not me. And I started to walk away. He grabbed me, pushed me against the wall. He was yelling at me. He was in my face, nose to nose. He was baiting me. Having no reason to stop me except for the color of my skin, he wanted me to do something, anything, to give him a reason to arrest me, or worse. As it turned out, someone from the dean's office happened to witness what was going on and rushed over to intervene. But if that hadn't happened, Taylor said he might not be here today. In the weeks following the conference call, Taylor said he kept getting calls from attorneys at other firms, asking if he could share the audio of the call with them. Eventually, he decided to make it public on SoundCloud under the title, Our Pain. Let me just say one more thing to the people of color that expressed a burden that they feel. The burden to hold it together, to stay professional, the burden to answer questions from their friends. It's not fair, but what can be better than being on the front lines of helping to make this country better for all of us? If not us, who? If not now, when? Thank you for listening. For many African Americans, including attorneys, stories like Taylor's are more common than we realize. Black lawyers take their experiences with them to their firms and back to their communities. And to truly understand the context of our current historical moment, it's important to peel back the curtain on the experiences of some of the first Black lawyers who paved the way for those now leading law firms. So really, the shift began to happen. Um, it coincided with the civil rights movement of the 1960s and the post-Brown era. That was Daniel Holly Walker, who's the dean of Howard Law School. Founded in Washington in 1869, Howard is the oldest law school at a historically Black university in the United States. It also happens to be the place that has trained the most Black lawyers in the country. So most of the work that Black lawyers did in the pre-civil rights period was really work in the community. They drafted wills. They helped people uh, settle contract disputes. They helped with basic real estate questions. So really that kind of you know, local neighborhood lawyer uh, who really worked to help their community. That was the core of what lawyering meant um, in the Black community at the time. Following the civil rights movement of the 1960s, Holly Walker said large law firms started to make moves to bring on more diverse lawyers. In that period, you begin to see lots of graduates of the law school who then have more opportunities opened up to them and they can practice and are offered opportunities to practice um, in government and also uh, in corporate law firms and in other spaces where before the civil rights movement, they would not have been able to practice. So that's really where the shift begins to happen. Another person who you interviewed, Lisa, that I think really exemplifies this early wave of Black lawyers entering into big law is Ben Wilson. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Sure, Adam. Ben Wilson's the chairman of Beverage and Diamond, a D.C.-based firm that specializes in environmental law, and he graduated from Harvard Law School in the mid-70s. It's important to keep in mind that back when Ben's career was starting, the idea that diversity and inclusion is something that law firms should aspire to really wasn't a widely held belief in the profession. In Mississippi, where I grew up, it was very segregated. My mother was from Kentucky, my father from upstate New York. But they knew somehow that the world would not always be segregated. 
And they wanted us to get ready. They wanted us to be ready for the change that they felt was inevitable. When Wilson began law school in 1973, he said the idea of working at a large corporate firm wasn't something he initially gave much thought to. That changed as he became more aware of how hesitant many large firms were to embrace diversity. The expectation then for our white counterparts was to go to major law firms in New York, Boston, or Washington, Philadelphia, Chicago. But black attorneys were not at any of those firms as a general matter. It was the very rare exception and not the rule. And quite frankly, it was not clear if they didn't want us or did they simply think that we weren't able. And uh, our desire was to go where they did not want us to go. Our feeling was if we did not challenge this belief, it might never change. After law school, Wilson was hired to work at King & Spalding, a large firm based in Atlanta. And while no one doubts that working at an elite law firm is a really tough, competitive job, one of the things that really jumped out at me, Lisa, from your talk with Ben, wasn't just that the work was hard and expectations were high, but also just all of these unwritten rules that people of color are forced to deal with. And it wasn't like there were people at the firm who were showing him these rules, you know, so it was just him and his wife, who was also an attorney. My wife and I would come home after a tough day, having learned something new, and we were trying, it was as though we were learning a new language, a new vernacular. So we would interpret for each other as best we could the significance of a given event. We would speak with our peers at other firms, and we encouraged each other. Wilson joined Beverage and Diamond in 1986 and later became the firm's managing partner. In 2017, he was selected as the firm's chairman. Wilson says his early experiences in law practice, along with his later leadership roles, showed him how important it was for firms to be intentional when it came to diversity. It doesn't matter if you're in a leadership position if you don't make a difference. You don't change the status quo. And one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to see diversity advance within my firm. I wanted to see women progress. I wanted to see African-Americans Asian Americans progress in our firm. Beyond his work to affect change at his firm, in 2009, Wilson also founded a group called the African American Managing Partners Network, which began with informal meetings between a handful of Black managing partners in Washington. A year prior, he founded the Diverse Partners Network. And today, both groups have grown to include many prominent lawyers of color from across the country. And one of those influential attorneys is a partner from a firm in Milwaukee. Uh, this is John Daniels, and I am Chairman Emeritus of Quarles and Brady. Like Ben Wilson, John Daniels also went to Harvard. But Lisa, when you spoke with John a few months back, he said that early on, the idea of a career in corporate law really wasn't something he'd considered. To be honest with you, when I went to Harvard Law School, I, I literally didn't know what corporate law was. For many Black law students who grew up during the civil rights era, the idea of working in big law didn't initially seem like a realistic career path. But for Daniels, that changed after he met a few prominent Harvard alums at an event hosted by the Black Law Students Association. I'll never forget it. Bill Coleman and uh, Reggie Lewis and others 
came and I ended up on the panel being the moderator with these guys who were giants. And I mean, I was more than a little intimidated by them. And Lisa, for our listeners who aren't familiar, could you just briefly explain who Bill Coleman and Reggie Lewis are? So Bill Coleman is a legend in Black legal history and in legal history, period. He was first in his class at Harvard Law in 1946. He was the first African-American clerk on the Supreme Court. And he was the first African-American lawyer hired by Paul Weiss in 1949. Later on, he served as a key strategist and brief co-author in Brown versus Board of Education. Wow, that's quite a career. Reggie Lewis also worked at Paul Weiss before going on to become a businessman and CEO of the first Black-owned company to have more than a billion dollars in sales, TLC Beatrix International Holdings, a major food company. And for Daniels, meeting these men was a revelation. It was one that opened his eyes to the fact that there are other avenues for Black lawyers, including working at large firms. One search firm was Quarles and Brady, where ideas about diversity were starting to take hold. There were a group of young lawyers at Quarles who wanted to integrate the firm. And I liked them. I liked them as people because I felt like if I came here that I would be judged based on my ability to perform. But then, just as it's true now, getting those opportunities to demonstrate your abilities often depends on having influential sponsors and mentors. For example, when I was a first-year lawyer, there was a very senior partner at the firm. You know, he decided early on whether an associate was good or not good. So he decided, you know, that I was, you know, okay, that I'd sort of make the cut. So he called me into his office and he gave me a couple of books. One book was Dress for Success, which was fine. And then he said to me, he says, uh, John, he says, uh, I don't mean to offend you, but you need to cut that mustache off. And he was serious. And he said, you know, facial hair is, that's going to, you know, turn some clients off. So I went home and talked to my wife, and I, we were laughing about it. Long story short, I went back, read the books he gave me, thanked him for the books, and um, it was clear to him that I'd made the decision I wasn't going to take his advice on facial hair. He became one of my biggest supporters in the firm. In 2006, Daniels was elected chairman of Quarles and Brady, becoming the first African-American chairman of an Amlaw 200 firm. During his time as chair, talent development and inclusion became a defining feature of Daniels' leadership. His motto, which the firm still uses, is every person counts every day. But like other Black lawyers, he also had to manage firm leadership and cultural change. When I became chairman of the firm, I went to our Phoenix office and I saw the security guard and uh, I said, I'm the chairman of the firm. And I walked into the reception area and I walked in, I saw the receptionist and I saw her face turn red. And I was trying to figure out what in the heck is going on. And this guy had followed me in to the reception area because he just could not fathom that I was chair of the firm. But the lesson for me in that story had less to do with that security guard than with the receptionist because I wanted her to feel as though she didn't need 
to be embarrassed for the conduct of others, that she and I were part of the same organization. So you just have to learn to sort of, you know, feel where you're comfortable on these things. But you got to keep in mind that the overall goal is to promote the organization you're in. In addition to firm leaders like John Daniels or Ben Wilson, who were starting to open doors for diverse attorneys at corporate firms, other people were starting to impact change on the pipeline itself, including on the faculties of some of the elite law schools in the country. David Wilkins is a professor at Harvard Law School and vice dean for global initiatives on the legal profession. He's also a third-generation lawyer, which puts him in a pretty unique category for a Black lawyer in the years just following the civil rights movement. My grandfather was a lawyer, my father was a lawyer, my uncle was a lawyer, so law was always around in my family. Like many Black lawyers in the 50s and 60s, David's father ran a small practice representing other Black clients in and around Chicago. He represented uh, small Black businesses and, and Black individuals and things like probate and, you know, trusted estates and contract negotiation. He really did kind of the waterfront. And, you know, it was a very challenging practice, as solo practice always is, particularly for Black lawyers. In addition to his family, Wilkins had other sources of inspiration from a pair of highly successful attorneys. I always say that I really had two big inspirations for becoming a lawyer. The first was Thurgood Marshall and, you know, the legal crusade uh, for equality in America. And uh, the other was Perry Mason, uh, which was my father's favorite show. And we used to watch it every week. No, Mr. Nichols, you didn't kill Thompson. But you did, Mr. Wells. Yes! Yes, I killed Matt Thompson! Like his uncle and father, Wilkins also went to Harvard Law. After graduating in 1980, he was selected for a coveted clerkship on the Supreme Court, clerking for none other than his childhood idol, Justice Thurgood Marshall. People always ask me, you know, what were the great cases that you worked on or the great dissents and the great arguments that you saw? And, you know, there were plenty of those things, but that isn't what I remember the most or think is the most valuable. It was the fact that every afternoon, about four o'clock in the afternoon, Justice Marshall would walk into the the clerk's room from his grand uh, office, and there was a big comfy chair, and he would sit down and he would tell stories. At first I thought that those stories were really just wonderful because they were wonderful stories and they really didn't have anything to do with the substance of the clerkship. But what I came to realize was actually they were at the very essence of what made Justice Marshall a great lawyer and a great judge, which is he understood the art of hearing and understanding the stories of real human beings and translating them into legal argument and and legal doctrine and Supreme Court opinions. And I think that is exactly why he is the greatest justice uh, who ever lived. After working at a small firm in Washington, D.C. for several years, Wilkins came face to face with a push to hire black attorneys onto the faculties of elite law schools, which up until this point had remained pretty white. 
To his credit, Jim Vorenberg, who had been in the uh, Robert Kennedy Justice Department and made his career as a civil rights lawyer, uh, you know, and prosecuting civil rights cases, he didn't want to preside over a law school faculty that had no blacks. Vorenberg was the dean of Harvard Law School from 1981 to 89. And so he literally started calling up all the black students who had graduated from Harvard Law School recently who had done well uh, and blacks uh, who had done well at other places like that little school in New Haven, Connecticut. And in short order, you know, he hired he hired. Chris Edley, uh, Randy Kennedy, Charles Ogletree, and me. This is true affirmative action, meaning he found me, he called me up, he recognized that I was qualified, I was a Supreme Court law clerk, I'd been on the law review, I had a good record, I was in a good law firm, but if he hadn't reached out, it never would have happened. As Ivy League graduates like Wilson, Daniels, and Wilkins were making inroads into big law and academia in the 70s and 80s, African-American women attorneys were also making strides. Adam, one of the people you spoke with is Patricia Brown Holmes. Yeah, Patricia is the managing partner of Riley Safer Holmes and Kinsilla, a firm with 200 employees and offices in five cities. So you have to move back to the 1980s when I went to law school. When I went to school, there were very few African-Americans in any particular class in law school and even fewer in corporate law firms. So if a law firm had one black lawyer, they thought they were really doing something with respect to diversity. Diversity and inclusion were not the buzzwords of the day. Brown Holmes graduated from the University of Illinois Law School in 1986. But even with good grades and an undergraduate degree in engineering, she still had difficulty getting traction in the field of law she was interested in, which was intellectual property. And so although I got plenty of interviews when I was in law school because people would see my resume, I would not get past the second or third interview. In fact, I had one interview where a law firm interviewer put his feet in my face in the interview room and said, I've been waiting for you all day. Can you tell me where I can get some good barbecue in this town? After that first introduction to corporate law, Brown Holmes decided to pursue civil service. She first became an assistant state's attorney in Cook County, Illinois, and then a federal prosecutor. Eventually, she would become a judge on the circuit court of Cook County. But Brownholm's career prospects took a surprising turn back toward big law in 2005, following a big push from Walmart, the nation's biggest retailer, to drastically increase diversity among its in-house and outside counsel. Walmart had engaged in a call to action among its law firms to say, bring us diverse lawyers. And don't just bring someone that you sit in our face and say, oh, gee, I've got a black lawyer. And then when the work gets in your firm, you tell that black lawyer, go sit in the corner, don't touch anything. They actually wanted people who would be the relationship partner, who would be the person who handles the matters. Other corporations started to follow suit 
and law firms were losing clients because they could not present African-American and other minority lawyers. And while Walmart wasn't the first company to try to leverage the carrot of their business to foster change in the legal industry, it was a really big deal and remains part of a trend that many companies have adopted in years since. So all of a sudden, people were searching. Where do we go to find Black lawyers with experience and who can hit the ground running? And uh, all of a sudden, I became somewhat of a hot commodity. So after almost 20 years working outside of big law, Brown Holmes accepted an offer to manage the White Collar Crimes and Corporate Compliance Group at Chicago-based Schiff Hardin. I took the bait and said, you know, we can do a lot of good in the profession. Why not? So we did. So I became the first black female equity partner at their firm. At, and uh, we did a lot of good in diversifying Schiff Hardin. Brown Holmes co-chaired Schiff Hardin's diversity committee. And in 2016, her last year at the firm, it ranked number nine on Balt's diversity ranking. With major law firms looking for ways to increase diversity to meet increasingly specific client metrics, recruiting experts say this kind of lateral hiring model, like the kind Brown Holmes experienced, will become even more common. I'm sure there were several people at the firm who thought of me as a token at first, but I leaned in and took charge. I attended meetings and spoke up because what typically happens is lawyers tend to gravitate toward those people who have like experiences and who have like backgrounds. Well, you might not have the same background that I have, but that doesn't mean that I'm not a good lawyer. It doesn't mean that I can't make money for the law firm. Doesn't mean that I can't be a great advocate. Get to know me and then I can have a great career and we can march forward together. And that is where we're going to leave the discussion for today. I want to extend a sincere thanks to my colleague and co-host, Bloomberg Industry Group's own Lisa Hellam. Thanks, Adam. I enjoyed all the discussions and look forward to talking with you again soon. Speaking of, what can our listeners expect to hear next? Our next episode will focus the lens even more directly on what firms, companies, and their clients are actually doing to promote diversity and inclusion. And more importantly, do we think it's working? This episode of Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Lisa Hellam and Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Additional editing came from Business of Law editor Rebecca Mincer. Until next week, thanks for listening. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.